Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Thomas Merton's The Seven Story Mountain, Volume 9, Part 5. My reading became more and more Catholic. I became absorbed in the poetry of Hopkins and in his notebooks, that poetry which had only impressed me a little six years before. Now, too, I was deeply interested in Hopkins' life as a Jesuit. What was that life? What did Jesuits do? What did a priest do? How did he live? I scarcely knew where to begin to find out about all such things, but they had started to exercise a mysterious attraction over me. And here is the strange thing. I had by now read James Joyce's Ulysses twice or three times. Six years before, on one of those winter vacations in Strasbourg, I had tried to read Portrait of the Artist and had bogged down in the part about his spiritual crisis. Something about it had discouraged, bored, and depressed me. I did not want to read about such a thing. And I finally dropped it in the middle of the mission. Strange to say, sometime during the summer, I think it was before the first time I went to Corpus Christi, I reread Portrait of the Artist and was fascinated precisely by that part of the book, by the mission, by the priest's sermons on hell. What impressed me was not the fear of hell, but the expertness of the sermon. Now, instead of being repelled by the thought of such preaching, which was perhaps the author's intention, I was stimulated and edified by it. The style in which the priest in the book talked pleased me by its efficiency and solidity and drive. And once again, there was something eminently satisfying in the thought that these Catholics knew what they believed and knew what to teach and all taught the same thing and taught it with coordination and purpose and great effect. It was this that struck me first of all, rather than the actual subject matter of their doctrine. Until that is, I heard the sermon at Corpus Christi. So then I continued to read Joyce, more and more fascinated by the pictures of priests in Catholic life that came up here and there in his books. That, I am sure, will strike many people as a strange thing indeed. I think Joyce himself was only interested in rebuilding the Dublin he had known as objectively and vitally as he could. He was certainly very alive to all the faults in Irish Catholic society, and he had practically no sympathy left for the church he had abandoned. But in his intense loyalty to the vocation of artist for which he had abandoned it, and the two vocations are not, per se, irreconcilable, they only became so because of peculiar subjective circumstances in Joyce's own case, he meant to be as accurate as he could in rebuilding his world as it truly was. Therefore, reading Joyce, I was moving in his Dublin and breathing the air of its physical and spiritual slums. And it was not the most Catholic side of Dublin that he always painted, but in the background was the church and its priests and its devotions and the Catholic life in all its gradations, from the Jesuits down to those who barely clung to the hem of the church's garments. And it was this background that fascinated me now, along with the temper of Thomism which had once been in Joyce himself. If he had abandoned St. Thomas, he had not stepped much farther down than Aristotle. Then, of course, I was reading the metaphysical poets once again, especially Crashaw, and studying his life, too, and his conversion. That meant another avenue which led more or less directly to the Jesuits. So in late August of 1938, and September of that year, my life began to be surrounded interiorly by Jesuits. They were the symbols of my new respect for the vitality and coordination of the Catholic apostolate. Perhaps in the back of my mind was my greatest Jesuit hero, the glorious Father Rothschild of Evelyn Waugh's Vile Bodies, 
who plotted with all the diplomats and rode away into the night on a motorcycle when everybody else was exhausted. Yet, with all this, I was not yet ready to stand beside the font. There was not even any interior debate as to whether I ought to become a Catholic. I was content to stand by and admire. For the rest, I remember one afternoon when my girl had come into town to see me, and we were walking around the streets uptown. I subjected her to the rather disappointing entertainment of going to Union Theological Seminary and asking for a catalog of their courses, which I proceeded to read while we were walking around on Riverside Drive. She was not openly irritated by it. She was a very good and patient girl anyway. But still, you could see she was a little bored walking around with a man who was not sure whether he ought to enter a theological seminary. There was nothing very attractive in that catalog. I was to get much more excited by the article on the Jesuits in the Catholic Encyclopedia, breathless with the thought of so many novitiates and tertianateships and whatnot. So much scrutiny, so much training. What monsters of efficiency they must be, these Jesuits. I kept thinking to myself as I read and reread the article. And perhaps from time to time, I tried to picture myself with my face sharpened by asceticism, its pallor intensified by a contrast with a black cassock, and every line of it proclaiming a Jesuit saint, a Jesuit mastermind. And I think the mastermind element was one of the strongest features of this obscure abstraction. Apart from this foolishness, I came no nearer to the church in practice than adding a Hail Mary to my night prayers. I did not even go to Mass again at once. The following weekend, I went to see my girl once again. It was probably after that that I went on the expedition to Philadelphia. It took something that belongs to history to form and vitalize these resolutions that were still only vague and floating entities in my mind and will. One of those hot evenings at the end of the summer, the atmosphere of the city suddenly became terribly tense with some news that came out of the radios. Before I knew what the news was, I began to feel the tension. For I was suddenly aware that the quiet, disparate murmurs of different radios in different houses had imperceptibly merged into one big, ominous, unified voice that moved at you from different directions and followed you down the street and came to you from another angle as soon as you began to recede from any one of its particular sources. I heard, Germany, Hitler, at six o'clock this morning, the German army, the Nazis. What had they done? Then Joe Roberts came in and said there was about to be a war. The Germans had occupied Czechoslovakia, and there was bound to be a war. The city felt as if one of the doors of hell had been half-opened, and a blast of its breath had flared out to wither up the spirits of men, and people were loitering around the newsstands in misery. Joe Roberts and I sat in my room, where there was no radio, until long after midnight, drinking canned beer and smoking cigarettes, and making silly and excited jokes but within a couple of days, the English Prime Minister had flown in in a big hurry to see Hitler and had made a nice new alliance at Munich that canceled everything that might have caused a war and returned to England. He alighted at Croydon and stumbled out of the plane saying, Peace, it ought time. I was very depressed. I was beyond thinking about the intricate and filthy political tangle that underlay the mess. I had given up politics as more or less hopeless by this time. I was no longer interested in having any opinion about the movement and interplay of forces, which were all more or less iniquitous and corrupt, and it was far too laborious and uncertain a business to try and find out some degree of truth and justice in all the loud artificial claims that were put forward by the various sides. All I could see was a world in which everybody said they hated war, and which we were all being rushed into a war with a momentum that was at last getting dizzy enough to affect my stomach.
All the internal contradictions of the society in which I lived were at last beginning to converge upon its heart. There could not be much more of a delay in its dismembering. Where would it all end? In those days, the future was obscured, blanked out by war as by a dead-end wall. Nobody knew if anyone at all would come out of it alive. Who would be worse off, the civilians or the soldiers? The distinction of their fates was about to be abolished in most countries by aerial warfare, by all the new planes, by all the marvelous new bombs. What would be the end of it all? I knew that I myself hated war and all the motives that led to war and were behind wars, but I could see that now my likes or dislikes, beliefs or disbeliefs, meant absolutely nothing in the external political order. I was just an individual, and the individual had ceased to count. I meant nothing in this world that I would probably soon become a member on the list of those to be drafted. I would get a piece of metal with a number on it to hang around my neck so as to help out the circulation of red tape that would necessarily follow the disposal of my remains, and that would be the last eddy of mental activity that would close over my lost identity. The whole business was so completely unthinkable that my mind, like almost all the other minds that were in the same situation, simply stopped trying to cope with it and refixed its focus on the ordinary routine of life. I had my thesis to type out and a lot of books to read, and I was thinking of preparing an article on Crayshaw, which perhaps I would send to T.S. Eliot for his criterion. I did not know that Criterion had printed its last issue and that Elliot's reaction to the situation that depressed me was to fold up his magazine. The days went on, and the radios returned to their separate and individual murmuring, not to be regimented back into their appalling shout for yet another year. September, as I think, must have been more than half gone. I borrowed Father Leahy's Life of Hopkins from the library. It was a rainy day. I'd been working in the library in the morning. I had gone to buy a 35-cent lunch at one of those little pious kitchens on Broadway, the one where Professor Gehrig of the Graduate School of French sat daily in silence with his ancient ailing mother over a very small table eating his Brussels sprouts. Later in the afternoon, perhaps about four, I would have to go down to Central Park West and give a Latin lesson to a youth who was sick in bed and who ordinarily came to the tutoring school run by my landlord on the ground floor of the house where I lived. I walked back to my room. The rain was falling gently on the empty tennis courts across the street, and the huge old domed library stood entrenched in its own dreary grayness, arching a cyclops' eyebrow at the south field. I took up the book about Gerard Manley Hopkins. The chapters told of Hopkins at Balliol at Oxford. He was thinking of becoming a Catholic. He was writing letters to Cardinal Newman, not yet a cardinal, about becoming a Catholic. All of a sudden, something began to stir within me. Something began to push me, to prompt me. It was a movement that spoke like a voice. What are you waiting for? It said. Why are you just sitting here? Why do you still hesitate? You know what you ought to do. Why don't you just do it? I was stirred in the chair. I lit a cigarette and looked out the window at the rain and tried to shut out the voice. Don't act on impulse, I thought. This is crazy. This is not rational. Just read your book. Hopkins was writing to Newman at Birmingham about his indecision. What are you waiting for? Said the voice within me again. Why are you just sitting there? It's useless to hesitate any longer. Why don't you just get up and go? I got up and walked restlessly around the room. This is absurd, I thought. 
Anyway, Father Ford would not be there at this time of day. I would only be wasting time. Hopkins had written to Newman, and Newman had replied to him, telling him to come and see him at Birmingham. Suddenly, I could bear it no longer. I put down the book and got into my raincoat and started down the stairs. I went out into the street. I crossed over and walked along by the gray wooden fence toward Broadway in the light rain. And then everything within me began to sing, to sing with peace, to sing with strength, and to sing with conviction. I had nine blocks to walk. Then I turned to the corner of 121st Street, and the brick church and the presbytery were before me. I stood in the doorway and rang the bell and waited. When the maid opened the door, I said, May I see Father Ford, please? But Father Ford is out. I thought, well, it is not a waste of time anyway, and I asked when she expected him back, and I would come back later, I thought. The maid closed the door. I stepped back into the street, and then I saw Father Ford coming around the corner from Broadway. He approached with his head down and a rapid, thoughtful walk. I went to meet him and said, Father, may I speak to you about something? Yes, he said, looking up surprised. Yes, sure, come into the house. We sat in the little parlor by the door, and I said, Father, I want to become Catholic. Part 6 I came out of the presbytery with three books under my arm. I had hoped I could begin taking instruction at once, but the pastor had told me to read these books and pray and think and see how I felt about it in a week or ten days' time. I did not argue with him, but the hesitation that had been in my mind only an hour or so before seemed to have vanished so completely that I was astonished and a little abashed at this delay. So it was arranged that I should come in the evenings twice a week. Father Moore will be your instructor, said the pastor. There were four assistants at Corpus Christi, but I guessed that Father Moore was going to be the one whom I had heard preaching the sermon on the divinity of Christ, and as a matter of fact, he was the one whom, in the design of providence, had been appointed for this work of my salvation. If people had more appreciation of what it means to be converted from rank, savage paganism, from the spiritual level of a cannibal, or of an ancient Roman, to be the living faith and to the church, they would not think of catechism as something trivial or unimportant. Usually the word suggests the matter-of-course instructions that children have to go through before First Communion and Confirmation. Even where it is a matter of course is one of the most tremendous things in the world, this planting of the word of God in a soul. It takes a conversion to really bring this home. I was never bored. I never missed an instruction, even when it cost me the sacrifice of some of my old amusements and attractions, which had such a strong hold over me. And while I had been impatient of delay from the moment I had come to that first sudden decision, I now began to burn with desire for baptism and to throw out hints and try to determine when I would be received into the church. My desire became much greater still by the end of October, for I made the mission with the men in the parish, listening twice a day to sermons by two Paulist fathers and hearing Mass and kneeling at benediction before Christ, who was gradually revealing himself to me. When the Sermon on Hell began, I was naturally making mental comparisons with the one in Joyce's Portrait of the Artist, and reflecting on it in a kind of detached manner, as if I were a third and separate person watching myself, hearing the sermon, and seeing how it affected me. As a matter of fact, this was the sermon which should have done me the most good, and did in fact do so. 
My opinion is that it is a very extraordinary thing for anyone to be upset by such a topic. Why should anyone be shattered by the thought of hell? It is not compulsory for anyone to go there. Those who do, do so by their own choice and against the will of God, and they can only get into hell by defying and resisting all the work of providence and grace. It is their own will that takes them there, not God's. In damning them, he is only ratifying their own decision, a decision which he has left entirely to their own choice. Nor will he ever hold our weakness alone responsible for our damnation. Our weakness should not terrify us. It is the source of our strength. Libenter gloriabur in infirmitatibus meis ut inhabitet in me virtus Christi. Power is made perfect in infirmity, and our very helplessness is all the more potent to claim on that divine mercy who calls to himself the poor, the little ones, the heavily burdened. My reaction to the Sermon on Hell was, indeed, what spiritus writers call confusion. But it was not the hectic emotional confusion that comes from passion and self-love. It is a sense of quiet sorrow and patient grief at the thought of these tremendous and terrible sufferings which I deserved and into which I stood a very good chance of entering in my present condition. But at the same time, the magnitude of the punishment gave me a special and particular understanding of the greatness of the evil of sin. But the final result was a great deepening and awakening of my soul, a real increase in the spiritual profundity, and an advance in faith and love and confidence in God, to whom alone I could look for salvation from these things. And therefore, I all the more earnestly desired baptism. I went to Father Moore after the Sermon on Hell and said that I hoped he was going to baptize me very soon. He laughed and said that it would not be much longer. By now, it was the beginning of November. Meanwhile, there had been another thought, half forming itself in the back of my mind, an obscure desire to become a priest. This was something which I tended to hold separate from the thought of my conversion, and I was doing my best to keep it in the background. I did not mention it either to Father Ford or Father Moore for the chief reason that in my mind it constituted a kind of admission that I was taking the thought more seriously than I wanted to. It almost amounted to a first step toward application for admission to a seminary. However, it is a strange thing. There was also in my mind a kind of half-formed conviction that there was one other person I should consult about becoming a priest before I took the matter to the rectory. This man was a layman and someone I had never yet seen, and it was altogether strange that I should be inclined so spontaneously to put the matter up to him as if he were the only logical one to give me advice. In the end, he was the one I first consulted. I mean, the one from whom I first seriously asked advice, for I had long been talking about it to my friends before I came around to him. This man was Daniel Walsh, about whom I had heard a great deal from Lax and Gertie. Gertie had taken his course on St. Thomas Aquinas in the Graduate School of Philosophy, and now, as the new school year began, my attention centered upon this one course. It had nothing directly to do with my preparation for the exams for the MA degree in January. By now, degrees and everything else to do with the university career had become very unimportant in comparison with the one big thing that occupied my mind and all my desires. I registered for the course, and Dan Walsh turned out to be another one of those destined in a providential way to shape and direct my vocation for it was he who pointed out my way to the place where I now am. 
When I was writing about Columbia and his professors, I was not thinking of Dan Walsh, and he really did not belong to Columbia at all. He was on the faculty of the Sacred Heart College in Manhattanville and came to Columbia twice a week to lecture on St. Thomas and Duns Scotus. His class was a small one and was, as far as Columbia was concerned, pretty much of an academic bypath. And that was, in a sense, an additional recommendation. It was off that broad and noisy highway of pragmatism which leads between its banks of artificial flowers to the gates of despair. Walsh himself had nothing of the supercilious self-assurance of the ordinary professor. He did not need this frail and artificial armor for his own insufficiency. He did not need to hide behind tricks and vanities any more than Mark Van Doren did. He never even needed to be brilliant. In his smiling simplicity, he used to efface himself entirely in the solid and powerful mind of St. Thomas. Whatever brilliance he allowed himself to show forth in his lectures was all thrown back upon its source, the angel of the schools. Dan Walsh had been a student and collaborator of Gilson's and knew Gilson and Maritain well. In fact, later on he introduced me to Maritain at the Catholic Book Club, where this most saintly philosopher had been giving a talk on Catholic action. I only spoke a few conventional words to Maritain, but the impression you got from this gentle, stooping Frenchman with much gray hair was one of tremendous kindness and simplicity and godliness. And that was enough. You did not need to talk to him. I came away feeling very comforted that there was such a person in the world and confident that he would include me in some way in his prayers. But Dan himself had caught a tremendous amount of this simplicity and gentleness and godliness too. And perhaps the impression that he made was all the more forceful because his square jaw had a kind of potential toughness about it. Yet no, there he sat, this little stocky man who had something of the appearance of a good-natured prize-fighter, smiling and talking with the most childlike delight and cherubic simplicity about the Summa Theologica. His voice was low, and as he spoke, he half-apologetically searched for the faces of his hearers for signs of understanding, and when he found it, he seemed surprised and delighted. I very quickly made friends with him and told him all about my thesis and the ideas I was trying to work with, and he was very pleased. And one of the things he sensed at once was something that I was far from being able to realize, but it was that the bent of my mind was essentially Augustinian. I had not yet followed Brahmachuri's advice to read St. Augustine, and I did not take Dan's evaluation of my ideas as having all the directive force that was potentially in it, for it did not even come clothed in suggestion or advice. Of course, to be called Augustinian by a Thomist might not in every case be a compliment, but coming from Dan Walsh, who was a true Catholic philosopher, it was a compliment indeed. For he, like Gilson, had the most rare and admirable virtue of being able to rise above the petty differences of schools and systems, and seeing Catholic philosophy in its wholeness, in its variegated unity, and its true Catholicity. In other words, he was able to study St. Thomas and St. Bonaventure and Duns Scotus side by side and to see them as complementing and reinforcing one another, as throwing diverse and individual light on the same truths from different points of view. And thus he avoided the evil of narrowing and restricting Catholic philosophy and theology to a single school, to a single attitude, a single system. I pray to God that there may be raised up more like him in the church and in our universities because there is something stifling and intellectually deadening 
about textbooks that confine themselves to giving a superficial survey of the field of philosophy according to Thomist principles, and then discard all the rest in a few controversial objections. Indeed, I think it was a great shame and danger of no small proportions that Catholic philosophers should be trained in division against one another and brought up to the bitterness and smallness of controversy, because this is bound to narrow their views and dry up the unction that should vivify all philosophy in their souls. Therefore, to be called Augustinian by Dan Walsh was a compliment in spite of the traditional opposition between the Thomist and Augustinian schools, Augustinian being taken not as confined to the philosophers of their religious order, but as embracing all the intellectual descendants of St. Augustine. It's a great compliment to find oneself numbered as part of the same spiritual heritage as St. Anselm, St. Bernard, St. Bonaventure, Hugh and Richard of St. Victor, and Duns also. And from the tenor of his course, I realized that he meant that my bent was not so much toward the intellectual, dialectical, speculative character of Thomism as toward the spiritual, mystical, voluntaristic, and practical way of St. Augustine and his followers. His course and his friendship were most valuable in preparing me for the step that I was about to take, but as time went on, I decided to leave the notion of becoming a priest out of the way for the time being, so I never mentioned it to Dan in those days. As November began, my mind was taken up with this one thought of getting baptized and entering at last into the supernatural life of the church. In spite of all my studying and all my reading and all my talking, I was still infinitely poor and wretched in my appreciation of what was about to take place within me. I was about to set foot on the shore at the foot of the high, seven-circled mountain of a purgatory steeper and more arduous than I was able to imagine, and I was not at all aware of the climbing I was about to have to do. The essential thing was to begin the climb. Baptism was that beginning, and a most generous one, on the part of God. For although I was baptized conditionally, I hoped that his mercy swallowed up all the guilt and temporal punishment of my twenty-three black years of sin in the waters of the fount, and allowed me a new start. But my human nature, my weakness, and the cast of my evil habits still remained to be fought and overcome. Towards the end of the first week in November, Father Moore told me I would be baptized on the 16th. I walked out of the rectory that evening happier and more contented than I had ever been in my life. I looked at a calendar to see what saint had that day for a feast, and it was marked as St. Gertrude. It was only in the last days before being liberated from my slavery to death that I had the grace to feel something of my own weakness and helplessness. It was not a very vivid light that was given to me on the subject. I was really aware at last of what a poor and miserable thing I was. On the night of the 15th of November, the eve of my baptism and First Communion, I lay in my bed awake and timorous for fear that something might go wrong the next day. And to humiliate me still further, as I lay there, fear came over me that I might not be able to keep the Eucharistic fast. It only meant going from midnight to ten o'clock without drinking any water or taking any food. Yet all of a sudden, this little act of self-denial, which amounts to no more in reality than a sort of abstract token, a gesture of goodwill, grew in my imagination until it seemed to be utterly beyond my strength. 
as if I were about to go without food and drink for ten days instead of ten hours. I had enough sense left to realize this was one of those curious psychological reactions with which our nature, not without help from the devil, tries to confuse us and avoid what reason and our will demand of it. And so I forgot about it all and went to sleep. In the morning when I got up, having forgotten to ask Father Moore if washing your teeth was against the Eucharistic fast or not, I did not wash them, and facing a similar problem about cigarettes, I resisted that temptation to smoke as well. I went downstairs and out into the street to go to my happy execution and rebirth. The sky was bright and cold, the river glittered like steel, there was a clean wind in the street. It was one of those fall days full of life and triumph made for great beginnings. And yet I was not altogether exalted, for there were still in my mind those vague, half-animal apprehensions about the externals of what was about to happen in the church. Would my mouth be so dry that I could not swallow the host? If that happened, what would I do? I didn't know. Gertie joined me as I was turning into Broadway. I do not remember whether Ed Rice caught up with us on Broadway or not. Lax and Seymour came after we were in church. Ed Rice was my godfather. He was the only Catholic among us, the only Catholic among all my close friends. Lax and Seymour and Gertie were Jews. They were very quiet, and so was I. Rice was the only one who was not cowed or embarrassed or shy. The whole thing was very simple. First of all, I knelt at the altar of Our Lady, where Father Moore received my abjuration of heresy and schism. Then we went to the baptistry, in a dark little corner by the main door. I stood at the threshold. Quid patis ab ecclesia dei? asked Father Moore. Fidem. Fides quit tibi praestet. Vitam eternum. Then the young priest began to pray in Latin, looking earnestly and calmly at the page of the rituale through the lens of his glasses, and I, who was asking for eternal life, stood and watched him, catching a word of Latin here and there. He turned to me. Abrenuncius tetene? In a triple vow I renounced Satan and his pomps and his works. Dost thou believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Credo. Dost thou believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, who was born and suffered? Credo. Dost thou believe in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the body and life eternal? Credo. What mountains were falling from my shoulders? What scales of dark night were peeling off my intellect to let in the inward vision of God and his truth? But I was absorbed in the liturgy and waiting for the next ceremony. It had been one of the things that had rather frightened me, or rather, which frightened the legion that had been living in me for 23 years. Now the priest blew into my face and said, Exi ab eo spiritus immunde. Depart from him, thou impure spirit, and give place to the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. It was an exorcism. I did not see them leaving, but there must have been more than seven of them. I had never been able to count them. Would they ever come back? Would that terrible threat of Christ be fulfilled, that threat about the man whose home was clean and garnished, only to be reoccupied by the first devil and many others worse than himself? The priest and Christ in him, for it was Christ that was doing these things through his visible ministry in the sacrament of my purification, breathed again into my face. 
Thomas, receive the good spirit through this breathing and receive the blessing of God. Peace be with thee. Then he began to pray and sign me with crosses. And presently came the salt which he put on my tongue, the salt of wisdom, that I might have the Savior of divine things. And finally he poured the water on my head and named me Thomas, if thou be not already baptized. After that, I went into the confessional, where one of the other assistants was waiting for me. I knelt in the shadows. Through the dark, close-meshed wire of the grill between us, I saw Father McGow, his head bowed and resting in his hands, inclining his ear toward me. Poor man, I thought. He seemed very young, and he always looked so innocent to me that I wondered how he was going to identify and understand the things I was about to tell him. One by one, that is, species by species, as best I could, I tore out all those sins by their roots, like teeth. Some of them were hard, but I did it quickly, doing the best I could to approximate the number of times all these things had happened. There was no counting them, only guessing. I did not have any time to feel how relieved I was when I came stumbling out, as I had to go down to the front of the church where Father Moore would see me and come out to begin his and my Mass. But ever since that day, I have loved confessionals. Now he was at the altar, in his white vestments, opening the book. I was kneeling right at the altar rail. The bright sanctuary was all mine. I could hear the murmur of the priest's voice and the responses of the server, and it did not matter that I had no one to look at so that I could tell when to stand up and kneel again, for I was still not very sure of those ordinary ceremonies. But when the little bells were rung, I knew what was happening, and I saw the raised host, the silence and simplicity with which Christ once again triumphed, raised up, drawing all things to himself, drawing me to himself. Presently, the priest's voice was louder, saying the pater noster. Then soon, the server was running through the confidior in a rapid murmur. That was for me. Father Moore turned around and made a big cross in absolution and held up the little host. Behold the Lamb of God, behold him who taketh away the sins of the world. And my first communion began to come towards me down the steps. I was the only one at the altar rail. Heaven was entirely mine, that heaven in which sharing makes no division or diminution. But his solitariness was a kind of reminder of the singleness with which this Christ, hidden in the small host, was giving himself for me and to me with himself, the entire Godhood and Trinity, a great new increase of the power and grasp of their indwelling that had begun only a few minutes before at the font. I left the altar rail and went back to the pew where the others were kneeling like four shadows, four unrealities, and I hid my face in my hands. In the temple of God that I had just become, the one eternal and pure sacrifice was offered up to the God dwelling in me the sacrifice of God to God, and me sacrificed together with God, incorporated in his incarnation, Christ born in me a new Bethlehem, and sacrificed in me his new Calvary, and risen in me, offering me to the Father in himself, asking the Father, my Father, and his to receive me into his infinite and special love, not the love he has for all things that exist. For mere existence is a token of God's love, but the love of those creatures 
who are drawn to him in and with the power of his own love for himself. For now I had entered into the everlasting movement of that gravitation, which is the very life and spirit of God, God's own gravitation toward the depths of his own infinite nature, his goodness without end, and God, whose center, who is everywhere, and whose circumference is nowhere, finding me through incorporation with Christ, incorporated into this immense and tremendous gravitational movement, which is love, which is the Holy Spirit, loved me. And he called out to me from his own immense depths. Chapter 2. The Waters of Contradiction How beautiful and how terrible are the words with which God speaks to the soul of those he has called to himself, and to the promised land, which is participation in his own life, that lovely and fertile country which is the life of grace and glory, the interior life, the mystical life. They are words lovely to those who hear and obey them, but what are they to those who hear them without understanding a response? For the land which thou goest to possess is not the land of Egypt from whence thou camest, where, when the seed is sown, waters are brought in to water it after the manner of gardens, but it is a land of hills and plains, expecting rain from heaven. And the Lord thy God doth always visit it, and his eyes are on it from the beginning of the year unto the end thereof. If then you obey my commandments, which I command you this day, that you love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give to your land the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your corn and your wine and your oil and your hay out of the fields to feed your cattle, that you may eat and be filled. Beware lest perhaps your heart be deceived and you depart from the Lord and serve strange gods and adore them. And the Lord being angry, shut up heaven, and the rain come not down, nor the earth yield her fruit, and you perish quickly from the excellent land which the Lord will give you. I had come like the Jews through the Red Sea of Baptism. I was entering into a desert, a terribly easy and convenient desert, with all the trials tempered to my weakness, where I would have a chance to give God great glory by simply trusting and obeying him and walking in the way that was not according to my own nature and my own judgment. And it would lead me to a land I could not imagine or understand. It would be a land that was not like the land of Egypt from which I had come, the land of human nature, blinded and fettered by perversity and sin. It would be a land in which the work of man's hands and man's ingenuity counted for little or nothing, but where God would direct all things and where I would be expected to act so much and so closely under his guidance that it would be as if he thought with my mind, as if he willed with my will. It was to this that I was called. It was for this that I had been created. It was for this that Christ had died on the cross, and for this that I was now baptized and had within me the living Christ, melting me into himself in the fires of his love. This was the call that came to me with my baptism, bringing with it a most appalling responsibility if I failed to answer it. Yet in a certain sense it was almost impossible for me to hear and answer it. Perhaps it demanded a kind of miracle of grace for me to answer it at once, spontaneously and with complete fidelity, 
and oh, what a thing it would have been if I had done so. For it was certainly true that the door into immense realms was open to me on that day. And that was something I could not help realizing, however obscurely and vaguely. The realization indeed was so remote and negative that it only came to me by way of contrast with the triviality and bathos of normal human experience. The talk of my friends, the aspect of the city, and the fact that every step down Broadway took me further and further into the abyss of anticlimax. Father Moore had caught us just as we were going out the door and rushed us into the rectory for breakfast. And that was a good thing. It had something of the character of my good mother, the church, rejoicing at having found her lost groat. We all sat around the table, and there was nothing incongruous about the happiness I then felt at all this gaiety, because charity cannot be incongruous with itself, and certainly everybody was glad at what had been done. First of all, myself, and Father Moore, and then, in different degrees, Lax, Gertie, Seymour, and Rice. But after that, we went out and discovered that we had nowhere to go. This eruption of the supernatural had upset the whole tenor of a normal, natural day. It was after 11 o'clock, and nearly time for lunch, and we had just had breakfast. How could we have lunch? And if, at 12 o'clock, we did not have lunch, then what was there for us to do? And then, once and for all, the voice that was within me spoke again, and I looked once again into the door which I could not understand, into the country that was meaningless because it was too full of meanings I could never grasp. The land which thou goest to possess is not like the land of Egypt from whence thou camest out. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread, and labor for that which does not satisfy you? I heard all this, and yet somehow I seemed not to be able to grasp it or understand it. Perhaps in a way there was a kind of moral impossibility of my doing what I should have done, because I simply did not know yet what it was to pray, to make sacrifices, to give up the world, to lead what is called the supernatural life. What were the things I should have done that it could not even occur to me to do? Well, I should have begun at once, in the first place, to go to communion every day. That did occur to me, but at first I thought that was not generally done. Besides, I believed you had to go to confession every time you wanted to go to communion. Of course, the simple way out of that would have been to keep going to Father Moore and asking him questions. That was the second thing I should have done. I should have sought constant and complete spiritual direction. Six weeks of instruction, after all, were not much, and I certainly had nothing but the barest rudiments of knowledge about the actual practice of Catholic life. And if I had not made the absolute tragic assumption that now my period of training was finished and done with, I would not have made such a mess of the first year after my baptism. Probably the very worst thing I could have done was to hesitate about asking questions that occurred to me and to have been too ashamed of my weakness to approach Father Moore about the real fundamental needs of my soul. Direction was the thing I needed most, which I was least solicitous to avail myself of. And as far as I remember, I only got around to asking Father Moore some trivial questions. What was a scapular? What was the difference between a breviary and a missile? And where could I get a missile? The idea of the priesthood had been put aside for the time being. I had good enough motives for doing so. It was too soon 
perhaps, to think of that. Nevertheless, when I ceased to think of myself explicitly as a possible candidate for a high and arduous and special vocation in the church, I tended automatically to slacken my will and to relax my vigilance and to order my acts to nothing but an ordinary life. I needed a high ideal, a difficult aim, and the priesthood provided me with one. And there were many concrete factors in this. If I were going to enter a seminary or a monastery someday, I would have to begin to acquire some of the habits of religious or seminarians, to live more quietly, to give up so many amusements and such worldliness, and to be careful to avoid things that threaten to provoke my passion in their old ways. But without this ideal, I was in real and constant danger of carelessness and indifference. And the truth is that after receiving the immense grace of baptism, after all the struggles of persuasion and conversion, and after all the long way I had come through so much of the no-man's land that lies around the confines of hell, instead of becoming a strong and ardent and generous Catholic, I simply slipped into the ranks of the millions of tepid and dull and sluggish and indifferent Christians who live a life that is still half-animal and who barely put up a struggle to keep the breath of grace alive in their souls. I should have begun to pray, really pray. I had read books all about mysticism, and what is more, at the moment of baptism, had I but known it, the real mystical life, the life of sanctifying grace and the infused theological virtues and gifts of the Holy Ghost, were laid open to me in all their fullness. I had only to enter into them and help myself, and I would soon have advanced rapidly in prayer. But I did not. I did not even know what was ordinary mental prayer, and I was quite capable of practicing that from the start. But what is even worse, it was four or five months before I even learned how to say the rosary properly, although I had one and used occasionally to say the paters and the aves without knowing what else was required. One of the big defects of my spiritual life in that first year was a lack of devotion to the Mother of God. I believed in the truths the Church teaches about Our Lady, and I said the Hail Mary when I prayed, but that is not enough. People do not realize the tremendous power of the Blessed Virgin. They do not know who she is, that it is through her hands all graces come because God has willed that she thus participate in his work for salvation of men. To me in those days, although I believed in her, Our Lady occupied in my life little more than the place of a beautiful myth. From practice, I gave her no more than the kind of attention one gives to a symbol of a thing of poetry. She was the virgin who stood in the doors of the medieval cathedrals. She was the one I had seen in all the statues in the Musée de Cluny, and whose pictures, for that matter, had decorated the walls of my study at Oakham. But that is not the place that belongs to Mary in the lives of men. She is the mother of Christ still, his mother in our souls. She is the mother of the supernatural life in us. Sanctity comes to us through her intercession. God has willed that there be no other way. But I did not have that sense of dependence on her power. I did not know what need I had to trust in her. I had to find out by experience. What could I do without love of the mother of God, without a clear and lofty spiritual objective, without spiritual direction, without daily communion, without a life of prayer? But the one thing I needed most of all was a sense of supernatural life and systematic mortification of my passions and my crazy nature. 
I made the terrible mistake of entering upon the Christian life as if it were merely the natural life invested with a kind of supernatural mode of grace. I thought that all I had to do was to continue living as I had been living before, thinking and acting as I did before, with the one exception of avoiding mortal sin. It never occurred to me that if I continued to live as I had lived before, I would be simply incapable of avoiding mortal sin. For before my baptism I had lived for myself alone. I had lived for the satisfaction of my own desires and ambitions, for pleasure and comfort and reputation and success. Baptism had brought with it the obligation to reduce all my natural appetites to subordination to God's will. Quote, For the wisdom of the flesh is an enemy of God, for it is not the subject to the law of God, neither can it be. And they who are in the flesh cannot please God. And if you live according to the flesh, you shall die. But if by the Spirit you mortify the deeds of the flesh, you shall live. For whosoever are led by the Spirit of God, they are sons of God. Unquote. Spiritu ambulate et desidere carnis non perfessiatis. St. Thomas explains the words of the epistle to the Romans very clearly and simply. The wisdom of the flesh is a judgment that the ordinary ends of our natural appetites are the goods to which the whole of a man's life are to be ordered. Therefore, it inevitably inclines the will to violate God's law. Insofar as men are prepared to prefer their own will to God's will, they can be said to hate God, for of course they cannot hate him in himself but they hate him in the commandments which they violate. But God is our life. God's will is our food, our meat, our life's bread. To hate our life is to enter into death, and therefore the prudence of the flesh is death. The only thing that saved me was my ignorance, because in actual fact, since my life after baptism was pretty much what it had been before baptism, I was in the condition of those who despise God by loving the world and their own flesh rather than him. And because that was where my heart lay, I was bound to fall into mortal sin, because almost everything that I did tended by virtue of my habitual intention to please myself before all else, to obstruct and deaden the work of grace in my soul. But I did not clearly realize all this. Because of the profound and complete conversion of my intellect, I thought I was entirely converted. Because I believed in God and in the teachings of the church and was prepared to sit up all night arguing about them with all comers, I imagined that I was even a zealous Christian. But the conversion of the intellect is not enough, and as long as the will, the domina voluntas, did not belong completely to God, even the intellectual conversion was bound to remain precarious and indefinite. For although the will cannot force the intellect to see an object other than it is, it can turn away from the object altogether and prevent it from considering that thing at all. Where was my will? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I had not laid up any treasures for myself in heaven. They were all on earth. I wanted to be a writer, a poet, a critic, a professor. I wanted to enjoy all kinds of pleasures of the intellect and of the senses in order to have these pleasures. I did not hesitate to place myself in situations which I knew would end in spiritual disaster. 
although generally I was so blinded by my own appetites, I did not even clearly consider this fact until it was too late and the damage was done. Of course, as far as my ambitions went, their objects were all right in themselves. There's nothing wrong in being a writer or a poet. At least I hope there's not. But the harm lies in wanting to be one for the gratification of one's own ambitions and merely in order to bring oneself up to the level demanded by his own internal self-idolatry. Because I was writing for myself and for the world, the things I wrote were rank with the passions and selfishness and sin from which they sprang. An evil tree brings forth evil fruits when it brings forth fruit at all. I went to Mass, of course, not merely on Sunday, but sometimes during the week as well. I was never long from the sacraments. Usually I went to confession and communion, if not every week, every fortnight. I did a fair amount of reading that might be called spiritual, although I did not read spiritually. I devoured books, making notes here and there, and remembering whatever I thought would be useful in an argument, that is, for my own aggrandizement, in order that I myself might take these things and shine by their light, as if their truth belonged to me. And occasionally I made a visit to a church in the afternoon to pray or do the Stations of the Cross. All this would have been enough for an ordinary Catholic with a lifetime of faithful practice of his religion behind him. But for me, it could not possibly be enough. A man who had just come out of the hospital, having nearly died there, and having been cut to pieces on the operating table, cannot immediately begin to lead the life of an ordinary working man. And after the spiritual mangle I had gone through, it would have been impossible for me to do without the sacraments daily, and without much prayer and penance and meditation and mortification. It took me time to find it out, but I write down what I have found out at last, so that anyone who is now in that position that I was in then may read it and know what to do to save himself from great peril and unhappiness. And to such a one I would say, Whoever you are, the land to which God has brought you is not like the land of Egypt from which you came out. You can no longer live here as you lived there. Your old life and your former ways are crucified now, and you must not seek to live any more for your own gratification, but give up your own judgment into the hands of a wise director, and sacrifice your pleasures and comforts for the love of God, and give the money you no longer spend on those things to the poor. Above all, eat your daily bread without which you cannot live, and come to know Christ whose life feeds you now in the host, and he will give you a taste of the joys and delights that transcend anything that you have experienced before, and which will make the transition easy.